this conversation with Carissa Valiz is totally fascinating to me. And the truth of the matter is that I don't really know where I stand on the issue, which is one thing that makes it so interesting to me. We're talking about privacy and data privacy in particular. And I want to set this conversation up because it's a complex one. And it's important that the backdrop is clearly articulated. So you see the background against which this conversation is happening. So I'm going to say four things here. I want to highlight four things. Number one, when people talk about privacy, especially in a corporate setting, not only, but especially in a corporate setting, they might be talking about one of three kinds of things. Number one, they might be talking about cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is essentially about making sure that only people who ought to have access to some data do in fact have access, and the people who ought not to have access to that data don't have access. That's the core of what cybersecurity is about. That's one way or bucket or approach or lens through which we might think about privacy. A second lens is regulatory compliance. So there are different places, California, the European Union, as two examples, that have regulations, laws around privacy and data privacy in particular. That's not about cybersecurity. That's about the kinds of things that, say, the kinds of data that companies are legally allowed to collect or what they're legally allowed to do with that data. So that's regulatory privacy or thinking about privacy from a regulatory perspective. There's then a way of thinking about privacy that we might call an ethical sense of thinking about privacy. There's different ways of carving this up. At the core of it, though, at the end of the day, I think, and there's more nuance here, and I'll talk about that nuance with Carissa, but it's a matter of the extent to which people can have control over data that's about them. The extent to which you can tell a company or a government no, you can collect that data. Yes, you can collect this data about me. You can use it for this, but not for that. So it's something like data privacy, at least at maybe I want to say the deepest level of ethics or something along those lines, or the most robust ethical standard for privacy, has something to do with the extent to which people have control over data that's about them. Okay, so that is the first thing that I want to say about privacy. Think about it in terms of cybersecurity perspective, a regulatory perspective, and an ethical perspective. And now put those first two perspectives to the side, because this conversation is really about that ethics aspect of privacy. So I've spoken to other people, for instance, Matt Rosenquist, you may have heard him in a previous podcast where we talk about the cybersecurity aspect of privacy. This is straightforwardly about the ethical conception or perspective on privacy. So that's what this conversation is about. That's the second thing I wanted to say. So first thing is these three ways of thinking about privacy or three approaches. The second thing is that we're going to focus on the third way, which has to do with the ethical conception of privacy, which is largely, though certainly not solely, as Carissa will articulate, about the extent to which you and I, citizens, consumers, etc., have control over their data. The third thing I want to say is, you know, I, in my book, Ethical Machines, not the podcast, but the book, I spend a chapter talking about privacy and really trying to get clear on what privacy is all about. And that's if you like my official line on privacy. I've been toying, though, with an unofficial line, thinking about do we really care or ought we really care about privacy that much, data privacy that much? And let me give you just two, two reasons that I'm skeptical. At least I'm trying these thoughts on. You know, it, I think it's important to sort of try thoughts on and try ideas on, try positions on, see how they fit. If they don't fit, you get rid of them. But this is what I've been trying on lately. One reason why I get skeptical about people talking about privacy or data privacy is that they start saying things like, that's my data. You know, my biometric data or 
the data about what I look like or what I sound like or my medical data or my pre data about my preferences or what, what I watched on Netflix or what books I bought from Amazon or whatever it is, that's my data because it's about me. And I just sort of think that's too fast of an inference. It's one thing to say that there's some data about you. It's another thing to say that it's your data in somewhat legal sense of ownership, I imagine. You know, so an example that I like to use is that if you're sitting in a cafe, you see me walk in, you write down in your notebook, read Blackman, enter the cafe at 10 a.m. I can't then go over to you. That's clearly data about me. But I can't, I don't think, go over to you, rip the page out of your notebook and say, that's my data. You would surely protest. Well, look, it's data about you, but it's not your piece of data. It's my notebook, my pen, I wrote it down, etc. So there's a disconnect between data about you or data about me and my data or your data. This is a data that we own. So since there's that gap between those things, I get a little bit skeptical, a little bit philosophically squeamish when people start playing fast and loose with the distinction between data about you and your data. That's, that's one sort of source of skepticism. Another source of if skepticism, at least something that makes me sort of chill out about the data privacy concerns, is that a lot of the data that is collected, and as Chris will say, not all, Chris will say not all, but a lot of the data that's collected is stored in these, you know, spreadsheets or whatever kind of software it is, some kind of database stored in a server that no individual ever actually looks at. So we talk about things like corporations know what you like, they know what you watched, but that's sort of anthropomorphizing them or sort of giving them too much credit. And most organizations don't even know what kind of data they have, frankly. And it's very rare, and this is contentious perhaps, but it's usually not the case, I think that's fair to say, that there's some individual person looking at some, you know, spreadsheet, finding data about you or data about me and being like, oh, Reed watched that show last night, or he bought that book, or he went to this location at this time. I don't think that's usually what's going on. So then I start to think, we talk about corporate surveillance, but is this perhaps a bit metaphorical or overblown, at least in some cases, because there is data collected about us, but we don't really do anything with it. Okay, they, 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 don't, they don't know it, and it's unclear whether they're going to do anything with it. So those are my two reasons for being a little bit skeptical. I have more reasons, but I'm trying not to dive into an, a complete lecture, a diatribe. So that's the third thing that I wanted to say. So we talked about, or I talked about, you didn't say anything. I talked about there's three ways of thinking about privacy. One of those ways is the ethical way that we want to focus on that has to do with user control or, or people having control over data that's about them. And then two reasons that I think, well, maybe this is not such a big deal after all. Number one, there's a difference between data about me and my data. And it's also, and also the second point is that these companies don't always know. There's not some individual looking at data about us, typically. It's just sort of buried in a spreadsheet in a server somewhere or something along those lines. Now, this is an important backdrop, I think, to the conversation because I'm going to push in this conversation. You'll see me pushing Carissa to sort of show me that I'm wrong. And I think she does an admirable job. I mean, I think she has made me certainly, in many ways, back off from my, from my skepticism. Not completely. I'm, you know, I'm not settled. These things need to marinate. You've got to think about it for some time. But I, I feel the, the force of her arguments. One thing that I want to highlight in this discussion is a distinction that Carissa and I talk about. I talk about it in my book. She talks about it, I believe, in her book. Um, and it's a, frankly, it's a, it's a distinction that philosophers generally, and Carissa and I both, philosophers, or we have PhDs in philosophy, she's a professor, I once was. It's the distinction between harming or being harmed and being wronged. So a lot of times people will talk about 
we don't want to harm people. But at least in philosophical circles and circles where the ethicists are talking, talk about harm is something like talk about physical or emotional harm. It feels like something to the person being harmed. But there are some cases in which, plausibly, you might be wronged even though you were not harmed. The most obvious case is when someone does something to you, but you don't know about it. So, for instance, let's say, you know, someone snitches on you. Someone, tell, someone tells someone else, someone tells the police that you did something illegal. You might not be harmed at the moment that they tell you, but let's suppose that it was a betrayal of trust. They may have arguably wronged you nonetheless, so you can be wronged without being harmed. Or here's one more example that Chris and I talk about. Your spouse may systematically be cheating on you, but she or he is a really good deceiver and you never find out. Nonetheless, while you're not being physically or emotionally harmed because you don't know about it, nonetheless, arguably, presuming that you don't have some sort of arrangement with your, with your significant other, you're being wronged. One thing to keep in mind here, then, this important distinction between being harmed and being wronged is that privacy violations, from this ethical sense, is often plausibly a matter not of being harmed but of being wronged. The fact that the companies or the government collect certain data about you makes it the case that you're being wronged, even if you don't know what they're doing. That is to say, even though you're not being physically or emotionally harmed by the collection or the use of that data, not necessarily. Nonetheless, they're having it, they're collecting it, constitutes a wrong by virtue of violating your right to privacy, which has to do with you having control over your data. Okay. So I know that was a lot, but that's the backdrop. So we're trying to think carefully about whether we really should take these data privacy concerns so seriously or if the sort of, if you like, the facelessness or the, the fact that it's, it's almost anonymous, that it's just in the server that no one cares about, that it's, you don't legally own the data, so it's not yours. How do we think about the importance of privacy, data privacy, from an ethical perspective? That's what the conversation about. And Chris is going to, I think, lean on the issue of, in many cases, even if you're not being harmed, you're being wronged. Okay, that was quite a long intro. I hope you stuck with it. But this should also, I hope, guide you through the conversation that I'm about to have with Carissa. Two sort of housekeeping kinds of things. Number one, if you like the show, like the pod, is it a show, podcast? Please review it, you know, five stars, whatever. Tell your friends about it. Really appreciate it. Always trying to get the word out. And then the second thing is, if you have an issue that you want me to discuss on the podcast, or you have a person to recommend that you'd like to, to hear me have a chat with, or you have just ethical questions as they pertain to AI or really any other emerging technology or technology generally, please send me an email. M as in ethical machines, em at readblackman.com. Send me that email. I will check it personally. I will not have an assistant do it. And I will see the email and I would love to hear what you want to hear about. I'm always looking for topics to talk about topics that you want to hear more about. Anyway, enough from me. It's enough babbling. Thanks so much for listening and let's get to it. Chris, I love the title of your book, Privacy is Power. So tell me, though, what do you mean by privacy? What do you mean by power? And why is one the other? Thank you. I'm glad you like the title. It's one of those things that came really easily. And, and that's, that was a relief because sometimes it's so hard to come up with the right title. But in this case, it came really easily because I thought that that was one aspect of data that people were missing out on. 
at the time, a lot of people were, were talking about data protection and a lot of legalistic debates, and they were missing out on this crucial aspect that it's not only about money, it's about power. And I think that has been has changed in the past couple of years in the debate, not only because of my book, but also other people have started talking about power, and that has been really helpful. So privacy, there's a technical definition that I could give you, but that would be probably getting into too much detail. But roughly, privacy, privacy is about having the capacity to keep certain things to yourself or to share them with just a few chosen others and to keep certain kind of access to yourself from others that you, that you don't want to have that kind of personal access to. So it's not only about information, but it's also like the capability of not being seen or heard. And that goes beyond information because I think as mammals, we have this very visceral reaction to being seen. And it's not only about the kind of information that someone can glean from you, but that it also makes you feel like possible prey. And power, again, there are more technical definitions, but roughly when somebody has power over you, they have the ability to make you do things that you would otherwise not do. And there are different kinds of power, so there are different classifications, but one way to separate the, the, the different kinds of power is between soft power and, and hard power. So soft power would be the kind of power that some, someone has over you through seduction, through narrative, through um, kind of soft means. And hard power would be, the paradigm would be physical power. So if somebody sure. is violent towards you. But there is an interesting hard, kind of hard power in tech because when code makes you do something, it's not physically violent, but it is something that is done unto you in a way that you have no agency over. Okay, so so there's already a, t a ton to unpack there. So, so first, one thing that I really like about the way you articulated privacy is that it's it's a capacity that people have. You didn't just say something like it's the state of not being known or or the state of not being seen. You said something like it's a capacity to let people see you or not see you or something along those lines. So, so we talk about a right to privacy. It's a right that one exercises. It's not a passive state in which people just don't see you. So that's already interesting to begin with because now we have to start thinking about if, if a company respects people's privacy, using that conception of privacy, then it's not merely a matter of them sort of not looking at certain things, but a matter of empowering the citizen, the user, the consumer, whatever, to exercise their right. So you, the, it sounds like the corporation that typically collects data has to make room in the way that they interact with you for you to exercise that right to privacy. That's that's one interesting thing. So first of all, do I have that right so far? Yes, I think you do. And if you want to be really precise, I think the distinction would be between privacy and the right to privacy. And privacy is about access. So you can have somebody unconscious and in a room alone, and they have privacy without having any kind of capacity. <laughs> right. But then there's a right to privacy, and that has to do with having certain kinds of control over uh, personal access to yourself and over certain kinds of information about yourself. So then when you say privacy is power, do you mean do you mean the active the active because so do, do you mean something more like is that shorthand for the right to privacy is power? I think it's both and it's partly because this is a book that is not academic and it's sure. accessible so I wanted to conform to kind of regular usage of the word. Um, but even just not 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 being accessed by certain kinds of institutions gives you a kind of power. So I think power lies both within privacy and the right to privacy. Okay, now, so now, now let's talk about this power stuff. So my confession is something like, I, I always find talking about power kind of weird in a way. I mean, it's sort of, 
the thing to do is to talk about power now and power structures and undoing power structures. If you're sort of a, of a certain political persuasion, you want to undo power structures. And I always thought, well, I mean, it depends. We don't want power to be unjustly distributed. We want power to be justly distributed. I take it that that doesn't mean that everyone should have exactly the same amount of power. Governments have power over its people. And in the cases in which it's a justified government or a legitimate government, they ought to have that power. So talking about power in a kind of ethicsy context seems to me downstream or something like that of talking about who ought to have power. I mean, we want to undo the power structures on the condition that the power structures ought to change, not just because we like moving power around. It's fun to do. That's an excellent point. And my concern here was that the citizenry, as part of a democracy, is losing too much power to sustain a healthy democracy. So, of course, the government should have more power than any kind of citizen in different ways, like to collect taxes and to have a police and so on and so forth. But there is a balance to be had. And when the government has too much power and the citizenry has too little power, it's very difficult to sustain that kind of demos that is the ideal. If you think about your own life and you think about how you're losing, exactly how you're losing privacy, it's easy to feel very disempowered because even if you're very careful, even if you do your best, you are going to lose very sensitive personal data that uh, could count against you or against your family members or against your community. And there's very little that you can do about it. And, and that is remarkable in democratic societies. Typically, that kind of status is related to being a subject of an autocratic regime, like in Russia or like in East Germany or in China. So is your focus more about data privacy as it relates to corporations? And you said earlier, you said something along the lines of, they make you do certain kinds of things that what you were trying to sort of locate the kinds of power that corporations have in the hard, hard power versus soft power distinction. And you said they make you do things, but now we're talking about government. So is your concern, is your primary concern, do you have a primary concern or do you think that the data privacy issue both relates to government power and corporate power? It both relates to government power and corporate power. Um, there are two things to take into account. One is that for a while, we've thought about corporations as less threatening than the government because they don't have certain kinds of power, like they don't have a police force. Sure. But we should remember that in the past, corporations have been much more powerful than governments. So, for instance, the East India Company used to have more soldiers than the UK government. And when we think about colonialism, we mm. tend to think about the UK government, but actually it was the East India Company. So let's keep that in mind to make sure that we don't have that kind of corporation that might have undue power. And the second reason why it's both about corporate and government power is because in this day and age, corporations and government interchange data very easily. Mm. So when the government collects data, it very often ends up in the hands of cor corporations. When corporations collect data, it almost always ends up in the, in the hands of governments. Okay, so I want to push more on the corporation stuff. I mean, I, I really like your point that there's not this sort of clean division between corporate data possession and government data possession since they share data back and forth, or at least it goes from corporations to government, if not the other way around. But so, so let me sort of take the extreme position and say, okay, so what? So they have data about us, these corporations, but, you know, when we talk, especially in the context of looking out for something like a fascist government or something like that, looking, you know, gathering all of our data, looking out, looking at our family and friends, et cetera, I mean, these big companies are taking our data, but it's not, 
it's not like you've got like this tech bro, you know, in the room next door. It's like East Germany listening into your conversation. It's data that you're generating in, you know, in concert with, you know, how you work with the platform, or whatever it is. And actually in your book, you point out, it's not just sort of obvious platforms, like say a Facebook or an Instagram or a TikTok, but you know, your smart refrigerator, your smart TV, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's a bunch of stuff. But then this data just gets collected. It gets aggregated, it gets stored in some server. It potentially gets disconnected from your name, where at the very least, I would think that in the vast, vast, vast majority of cases, 99.9% .9 of cases, there's no individual person looking at, you know, Reed Blackman or Carissa Valiza, you know, oh, you know, name in a spreadsheet and be like, oh, they, you know, he watched that show last night or whatever. So is it really, is my privacy really being invaded? That's, that's, I guess that's one question. Is that, should I really consider that sort of thing a, a violation of my privacy? If so, is it that big of a violation of privacy? And does it really enable them to, as you, as you sort of put it, I know casually, make us, they make us do things? Yes, the answer to all those questions. I think Great, good. Thank you very much. And we're done here. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd be surprised. Yeah. So first of all, to the idea that there's no tech bro kind of looking at your camera or something. Yeah. Actually, in many cases, there is. I mean, we've read about cases in which tech workers have been listening to conversations with Siri and Alexa, sometimes very sensitive conversations having to do with your health, sometimes sex scenes, all kinds of mm. things. I think the latest one has been Tesla, in which it's been recording scenes from people's garages, again, sometimes very sensitive. And there mm. are people on the other side see, like, going through those kinds of images, partly to train the algorithm, partly for other reasons. And these people sometimes become whistleblowers because they feel genuinely uncomfortable. And there is a practice in many companies, this is a claim with Tesla, of people who uh, stumble upon particularly sensitive images and they share them with their buddies because mm. that's what some people do. So that, that's the first thing. But you might think, well, okay, it's kind of creepy, but it doesn't worry me like to towards the exception to the rule or something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. But when all of this data get, gets collected, it ends up in the hands of data brokers and data brokers have a file on you that might contain all kinds of things like what you search for online and what you post uh, on social media, your purchasing power, your health status, all kinds of things. And they sell this data in a variety of forms. Sometimes it is very aggregated data, so you just become a drop in the ocean and it, it doesn't seem to matter that much. Although even then, there can be inferences that are then made from aggregated data that can be about someone like you that can have effect on your life. But in some cases, there, there are two cases that are particularly problematic. One is they sell lists of people. And when you look at the category of, lit, of, of the list, you get a sense of just how problematic this might be. So categories can include victims of a rape, people who have lost a child, people who suffer from premature ejaculation, people who are HIV positive. So there is a market for mm -hmm. finding out about people's vulnerabilities. And there's a reason for that. It's not just like curiosity, right? That can have an effect when, when you ask for a loan, when you ask for a job, when you ask for an apartment, all kinds of things. And then... It is possible to also buy a particular person's file. And one of the misleading issues around data is that very often we get told that our data is being anonymized or pseudonymized. And most of the time that means very little because it's very easy to re-identify people. You, you typically only need two or three data points to re-identify re people. So next time you ask for a job, if it's for a big company, there's a very good chance that that company is going to, to buy your personal file 
from a data broker that will contain all these kinds of information that are very sensitive and not aggregated at all. So it sounds like there are... So one thing that you're pushing, one way in which you're pushing back is saying something like, actually, read that the extent to which you are, ex, you know, an individual is explicitly identified, they're, they're, they're real. The, the, the rate at which that happens is greater than you think, Reed. That's the, I take it the first point. So, okay, that's interesting. And those seem like arguably violations of privacy. But let's take for a minute the cases in which there is no individual looking at my data. That, you know, it just... It doesn't get de-anonymized or there's no individual looking at it. It's just collected. Maybe an algorithm runs through it to see what ad is probably right for me. Is that, is that a violation of my privacy? So here's where it gets technical. And here I would argue that let's suppose that nobody ever looks at that data. Yeah. Even then, there is a violation of your right to privacy because you no longer have control to limit the access to that data, even if nobody accesses it. And that changes our relationships of power, right? So when you know that say, let's say your employer has access to your health data, even if they never look at it, you know they might look at it. So it might make you do things that you wouldn't do otherwise, mm -hmm. like run more. And you might say, well, that's good for you. But in many cases, it might not be good for you. Or it, it might be the wrong thing because actually you have bad knees and you would rather do yoga, but you can't actually measure yoga. So you ended up doing running, right? Or if you know that your government has access to that data, you might want really want to go to a protest. You might think it's the right thing to do and it's just, and you might think, yeah, but is it worth the risk? Maybe not. And you stay home. All right. I can see that point now. I mean, th so that's something like, look, there's this data that's collected about me by corporations, which may or may not be shared with governments. And I don't know how they're going to use that data, but it may be used in some way against me. So for instance, my employer might use it to judge whether I should get a promotion or I should be fired or whatever it is, get a bonus. Governments might use it for political purposes, political surveillance or something along those lines. And so since I don't know what is going to be done with my data, I should be concerned that the data is being collected. And it, I feel like the harm or the wrong that's being done to me is something like undermining my autonomy because I'm doing things I wouldn't otherwise want to do for fear of, I don't know, I don't know what the right word is here. Fear of being harmed by government or corporation or both. Yeah. So there's a paper by De Bruin in which he argues that violations of privacy affect negative liberty. And one of the ways in which it affects it is that you can't... You, you Sorry, can, can you say what negative liberty is? I mean, I know what you mean, but... Right. So negative liberty is a kind of liberty that is often associated with liberal democracies. And the idea is that you should be free to do what you want, to not have any kind of interference, not only kind of active interference, but also kind of passive interferences. So one of the examples that the brain gives is, if I remember correctly, is that if you know that your data is being collected and it will be used for deciding whether you get a job or not, then you yourself will affect your, your behavior, even if nobody technically steps in and changes it. Sort of one of the standard problems with surveillance, right? It's not, it's, not, it's not merely... So one thing that might be bad about surveillance is that people catch you doing things that they think you ought not to be doing, and then they arrest you or they assault you or whatever it is. But the other, the other point is something like part of living a free life is to live 
unencumbered with the constant fear that some malicious or uncharitable viewer is looking at you to punish you or to hurt, hurt you in some way or other. And so you change your, you make different decisions, you act differently. And so that's, there's a way in which you're unfree simply by virtue of being surveilled because the surveillance leads to fear of yeah. being harmed. And so it changes your behavior, changes the way that, that you live your life. And that's an undermining of autonomy. Yeah. So there are two ways of looking at it. One, one is sort of the lens of liberalism. And there you would say like, well, you're, you don't have negative freedom because you have certain kind of obstacles. One kind of obstacle is that actually if you do certain kinds of things, the government or, or corporations will get involved in your life and you, you won't have that job or you will get fired or whatever yeah. it is. The other way is that there's a chilling effect in which you create your own obstacles in, in response to very reasonable fears. Uh, and the other way to look at it is through rep republicanism. So Philip Pettit um, has famously argued that it's not enough to be free to not have obstacles. And the, the example he gives is the master and the slave. So the slave, you cannot say of the slave that, that he's free, even if his master never interferes with him, because the slave knows that the master could interfere with him, even if he never does. And in that way, there's a, there's a different way in which you're unfree, and that changes the power relationships when there, there are privacy violations. So I guess, you know, you know, I, I'm sort of, on the one hand, I'm sympathetic with what you're saying. On the other hand, I kind of, I still want to resist a little bit. You know, yes, there are some cases, you know, there are cases in which bad things happen. Two things, though. Number one, it still seems to me like it's the minority of cases. But maybe that's enough to say, well, nonetheless, it's a, it may be, it might not be, it might be the exception to the rule, but the exceptions happen often enough such that we ought to be really concerned. The other thing, and maybe this is more of a philosophical point than it is a practical sort of, ugh, God, did I just equate philosophical with non-practical? I just made myself nauseous. Maybe it's a more sort of a point that doesn't lead directly to a particular action, but it's a way of conceiving of things. So I'm less concerned about the possession of the data than what's done with the data. And just because people can do bad things with data about me doesn't entail that my privacy has been violated. So the example that I like to use here, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it is, is, is the following. So suppose that I work at a, some company and there's a fire alarm that goes off. And every time the fire alarm goes off, I notice that this guy in my office, Achilles, he covers his heel. And I'm like, huh, that's curious. That guy, he, he covers his heel every time. I bet his heel is vulnerable. And you fast forward and Achilles and I get into a fight, a physical, it turns into a physical alteration. I go for his heel. I deal him the, the mortal blow, right? He's dead now. And then someone says, Reed. I can't believe you violated Achilles' privacy. It's like, then everyone's like, yeah, look, that wasn't, that wasn't the real wrong there. The, the fact that I infer that he's got some vulnerable point, some, I inferred some information about him that he wanted me not to know, that's not the real issue. The issue is that I used that information in a way to kill him. It's the killing that's the problem. So then I want to say something like, the possession or the inferring, inferring of, of data about people, that's not the real sort of moral problem. It's the use. And so shouldn't we be worked up about the ways that people use data as opposed to the mere fact that they have it? I think that's the way regulation has been thought about in recent times. And that's the way the, the, the kind of regulation we have is designed. And I think it's a mistake. One practical reason for which is a mistake is because it's very hard to police that, that data. So there's so much of it that if you don't regulate the way it's collected, you're not going to be able to check the way it's 
used. But above and yeah. beyond practical concerns, here's an analogy. Try to change your mind. Yeah. So, so before you give that analogy, I just want to say, I agree that there should be controls over what kind of data is collected. But that's a strategy to minimize bad use. It's not because the possession of that data itself constitutes a violation of privacy. At least that's the line that I'm sort of trying on, so to speak. Okay. So, so I agree that it's a strategy that's effective. Yeah. But I further argue that um, there is a wrong in collecting sensitive okay. data. So, I mean, one reason before I go to the analogy is because even if, let's say you're super well-intentioned and you collect sensitive data for good reason, uh, just holding that personal data is exposing people to risks because hackers want that personal data all the time. So that in itself is a risk. But let's go with the analogy. So I just finished an academic book on privacy that's hopefully going to be published at the end of this uh, academic year. No, at the end of this year, not the academic year. And I argue that privacy is a richly, richly demanding good, a robustly demanding good. And I, I use this terminology from, from Philip Pettit again. And the idea is that there are certain goods that we only have if we have not only here and now, but also in relevant possible worlds. And privacy is similar to security in that sense. So what you're saying is, when it comes to the right to security, what matters is if you get hurt or shot. But you might see how that might be problematic if you think about two cases. One is a case in which, let's say, everyone in the world has the key to your apartment or to your house. And the fact is, most people are good people, and they won't use that for anything. And maybe you will even have a neighbor who uses that key to bring you pie or, you know, <laughs> sure. fix a leak or whatever. Yeah. But if you give it to enough people, eventually you'll find someone who will want to use it to steal. That's, yeah. that's just of being course. realistic. Yeah. And the other, the other example is, so imagine like we have an occupying polity and suddenly you, ha you see snipers in every corner like, targeting your head. And they were like, well, we're not doing anything. You can just carry on with your life. And if we never shoot, then, you know, right, no harm, the wrong no is not in the having of the gun. The wrong is, is only if we shoot. But you can see how that puts you in a, in a power position that you don't want to be in. And in the case of the Achilles, it's an interesting example because, yes, the wrong is in the killing. But it's really interesting that had you not known about the heel, you wouldn't have been able to kill him. Okay, so the idea is... Privacy sort of, I guess it's something like knowing that you're not in danger is an important good of life. Is that a, a fair way of summarizing it? Yeah, and it's not only about danger when it comes to privacy. It has to do with danger. So I think typically, for instance, women tend to be more privacy conscious because we feel more in danger in the world mm -hmm. or in, in certain aspects. Um, but it's also about feeling free to do certain things. So it's also about, it has to do with creativity, with relaxation. When you know someone's watching, it's hard to be as relaxed. It's hard to be as free to explore different activities. So, okay. I mean, th so this is, this is I'm going to just sort of, again, try, try on a line of thought. If you, if you think, okay, there's a gun constantly at my head. Yeah, that's going to that's gonna mess with your life. That's going to mess with your inner satisfaction or inner tranquility. There's no question because you're always, you don't know whether the, you know, the ax is going to drop or the, whatever the, I'm mixing metaphors now or analogies, but you don't know what might happen. You, don't, you might not know what happened and that, that makes you justifiably freaked out. Your life is worse off. You change your behaviors in various ways to 
minimize the probability of getting shot, but it also means that you're curtailing certain activities that would be fulfilling, that sort of thing. So, so that's bad. But is it, is it the, it's the, suppose I say, well, that just means the company should be more subtle about the collection of the data, right? If they're like snipers out there aimed at us, then we know. But as long as they do it sort of very quietly, then no change in life. It's the knowledge that's the problem, not the collection of the data that's the problem. Yeah, that's a good uh, objection. Um, I guess it depends on whether you are fully utilitarian or consequentialist or not, right? So most people, I think, seem to care about whether their partner is being faithful to them, whether they know about it or not. So you might say, well, yeah. you know, the perfect world is one in which your partner is unfaithful to you because they're happier and you don't know about it. So you're happier. Everybody's great. And I think most people would say, no, that's not what I want. It's not what I want is not not to know that my partner is being unfaithful. What I want is for my partner to be faithful. And in the same way, I think it matters to us to have privacy, a world in which suddenly you realize that you've been surveilled by a peeping yeah. Tom for two years, even though you didn't know about it and didn't harm you or didn't apparently harm you, is not a comfortable world. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I think this brings out the distinction between being harmed and wronged, which I talk a fair amount of it, a fair a bit about, but few people really care. But I wish, you know, in the AI ethics world or the data ethics world, everyone's always talking about being harmed. And I wish they would talk about being wronged because it seems to me like there's plenty of ways of being wronged without being harmed. So just, I'm just going to basically repeat what you said, which is something like, if your spouse or your loved one is cheating on you and you don't know about it, nonetheless, you know, you're not suffering any psychological or physical harm. You don't know, you know, you're certainly, you seem happy. Your spouse is a very good deceiver. So you're not being emotionally harmed or physically harmed, psychologically harmed. Nonetheless, you're being wronged. And, you know, and then we could ask, so number one, you're being wrong. Number two, we can ask, which, in which scenario is your, is your life going better? The one in which your spouse is perfectly deceiving you and cheating on you all the time or the one in which that's not happening? And it seems like, oh, well, the other one. I might not know that my life is going better in that second scenario, but it is going better. And so if you take those things on board, then you think, okay, you can be wronged without being harmed. Your life can go worse if you're systematically being wronged, even though you don't know it. And so the way in which, so then, and then you say, well, look, privacy is like that. We can be wronged even if we're not being harmed by, say, these corporations or by the governments. And we're wronged by virtue of their infringing on our right to exercise by virtue of infringing upon our right to, by virtue of infringing upon our ability to exercise our right to privacy. Yeah, or just violating our right to privacy. I think our right to privacy is inherently having to do with, with control. But yeah, something like that. Does this discussion or does this, does this claim sort of go around the issue of talk about ownership of data? Because we haven't talked about my data versus your data. I often get rubbed the wrong way when people say this is my data. I sort of think, well, no, it's data about you, but it's data about me, therefore it's my data. That's just a bad inference. I mean, if I write down on my notebook, Carissa, you know, enter the cafe at 10 o'clock, you can't come over and rip the page out of my notebook and say, that's my data. I mean, it is data about you, but it's not yours in any, certainly not in any legal sense. So I wonder if the way that you're posing things means that we don't have to talk about ownership of data? Or is there something implied in your argument that does say something like, oh, yeah, yeah, this data about you, that's actually your data in some meaningful, I don't know, moral sense or something like that? Yeah, that's a really good question. 
And I think language is like deceptive in this sense because there are many ways to interpret what does it mean to say my data. And I think a lot of people, as you correctly say, infer that there's some kind of ownership, but ownership seems to be something different. And you can yeah. have you can say my something without it necessarily implying that that um, there's ownership there. So one of the things I argue for in privacy is power is that even though personal data is obviously about ourselves and in order to have our right to privacy respected, we need to have certain control over it. At the same time, it's a mistake to think that we have the moral authority to do whatever we want with our data, just like as if it were property. So if you have a house and it's yours, other things being equal, you can sell it, you can destroy it, you can whatever. But your personal data, more often than not, contains data about other people. So your genetic data, of course, contains data not only about your parents and siblings and kids, but also about distant cousins and distant kin that you might never have heard of. Your location data contains data about people who live and work nearby you. Your psychological data contains data about people who share that kind of profile. So whenever you share your data, more often than not, you are sharing other people's data as well. And that questions the moral authority we have to do that when, when we share data, not only are we sharing other people's data, but it also has collective consequences. Like the 270,000 people who donated their data to Cambridge Analytica, that had consequences for entire democracies. But it's interesting, the example you give, like if, if you write something down about someone, can, do they have the right to rip out the page? Legislation varies a lot in this sense. And I think there are some cases in which we might want to say yes. So for instance, in Germany, if somebody takes a picture of you, an intimate picture, let's say your partners, and then you break up, you do have the right to ask for those pictures back. And I think that makes sense. So, so then I guess, should we then say, you know, one, one way that this argument usually, you know, goes something like, it's data about me. So it's my dad in the sense that I own it. So I should have control over it. I should be able to do what I want with it. Whereas it seems to me you're going a different from a different direction. And tell, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but your point is more like, look, we've got this right to privacy. It can be infringed in various ways. We can be wronged, even if we're not, even if we don't know that it's going on. And are you from there sort of giving an argument for why we ought to have ownership over our data? even though we don't now, and that's not part of the argument about why we ought to have control. So to put us again slightly differently, people think it's, we own our data, so we ought to have control over it. And I think your argument sounds more like we ought to have control over it, so we ought to be able to legally own it. No, I don't okay. think we should legally own our data because I don't think we have the moral authority to sell our data in many, in many cases, not if it's going to sh share other people's data as well and not, and not if it's going to have collective consequences. So I think... There should be minimal requirements for safety having to do with privacy that nobody can trump, not even if you want to share certain kinds of data. Well, you can't because society has an interest that you don't do that. But then over and above those kind of minimal requirements, then yes, we should have control over our data. But I wouldn't, I, I don't think it should be ownership because one of the most toxic practices related to privacy is the buying and selling of personal data. So I think we should outlaw that. And I think even in the most capitalist of societies, we agree that there are certain things that are outside the market. So we don't buy or sell votes. We don't buy or sell 
organs. We don't buy or sell. The result of sports matches. And for the same reasons, we don't buy or sell votes. We shouldn't buy or sell personal data. Well, that's a very, that's a robust position. Comparing data about us to something like, you know, literally physical organs that we have. So what's the call then? I, is the call to action or, you know, you wave a magic wand and what happens is that corporations stop collecting Corporations and governments stop collecting data about us, barring something like a warrant to do so? So in Privacy is Power, I have a two, two whole chapters on exactly what to do and how to um, implement the kind of suggestions that I give. And it's not going to be one thing. There's no, there's no sure. magic wand. Sure. Um, but the first thing is to ban the trade in personal data. So it doesn't mean that your doctor can't collect personal data. Of course, it means yeah. that they can't sell it. And that's a huge difference. And likewise, some companies might, you know, can, can have good reasons to collect some personal data and that's fine, but they can't sell it. And it's also necessary to have minimum cybersecurity requirements, which we currently actually don't have. Sure. It's also necessary to have fiduciary duties. So whoever wants to collect personal data, that's fine, but they have to accept the responsibility of care towards the data subject because that data is very sensitive. It can be easily misused. So they need to be responsible for it. And if they don't want to be responsible for it, that's fine, but then don't collect it. Just like if you want to be a doctor, that's fine. But if you want to open someone up with a knife, then you have to take responsibility. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. So don't become a doctor. I think there are also different ways to design the digital world that are more privacy respectful. So one practice that should become standard and isn't is periodically deleting personal data. Whenever we don't need it anymore, we can delete it. And so at the moment, anything that gets collected is pretty much permanent. And I think that's a mistake. There are also certain kind of techniques like differential privacy and homomorphic encryption and, and there are others in which we can achieve the same results with either no personal data or much less personal data or, or personal data that is protected much better. So I think it's going to be a host of solutions. Yeah, right. No, I certainly agree that there's not going to be this, the silver bullet that fixes all the issues. Yeah. Okay. Chris, we're going to call it there. Thank you so much. I feel like if we kept going, we're going to go into deep philosophy worlds, which I would love to do, but I'm not sure that everyone is going to follow along with us. But this has been really, really interesting and frankly helpful because I find it in some ways difficult to think clearly about privacy. And the Achilles example makes me, gives me pause, but you are giving me pause for thinking about that people really are wronged by virtue of having certain data collected about them, even if they're not harmed. And it's something that we need to take seriously. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Reed. It's been a pleasure.